Welcome to Odds Bodkin's Curiosity Shop, where you'll find the unique, the bizarre, and sometimes the haunted. Feel free to look around, peruse the items, and never fear. There's nothing here that bites. Hard, anyway. <laughs> well, hello there. So pleased to see you've returned once again to Odds Bodkin's Curiosity Shop. I'm your shopkeeper, Chris Baker. And today we have got a, a very special item that you might find interesting. It's an old letter, complete with a broken wax seal. The pages have yellowed and cracked over time. It looks like it could be from the 1800s as we open the letter and leaf through the pages we find that this is addressed to someone named bones and it is signed by the sender of the letter charles boone now this letter tells an epistolary tale of a man who went to reclaim his ancestral home and found death and murder and the mysteries of the worm. This is, in fact, a letter telling the tale of Jerusalem's lot by Stephen King and is the basis for our discussion today on a recent Epic's limited series. So let's pull out the mutoscope and take a look at Chapel Wait. I've told the story many times about how the first Stephen King book I ever read was actually Stephen King's book, Night Shift. I picked it up in high school at a book fair, and the rest is history. I've told this a hundred times. I'll probably tell it a hundred more on here. I don't know how I've told it a hundred times on here when we don't have that many episodes, but you get the drift. The first short story in the book night shift happens to be jerusalem's lot and it really was a poor example of stephen king's work to start off my journey into the world of stephen king because jerusalem's lot is probably one of the most un-stephen king stories that stephen king has ever told and i realized this after i read jerusalem's lot it's very hp lovecraft it's very edgar Allan poe in some regards it's a gothic tale it's a cosmic tale in a way. It's very akin to the things that H.P. Lovecraft wrote about. And it, that's not Stephen King. And, and I believe he's gone on in interviews to say this was kind of his ode to Lovecraft, uh, this story. But as you read the rest of the stories in succession through Night Shift, you'll find that uh, you know Stephen King's work is very well represented. Stephen King's style, very well represented in those later stories. And I, I realized what Stephen King was going to be about, and what an anomaly Jerusalem's Lot was, because it was very unkingian, if you will, but still a good story, an odd story. It's a bizarre tale that really, uh, for me, didn't make sense. Well, I was going to say it didn't make sense until I read Salem's Lot, but even after that, it didn't really make sense until uh, many years later when I could cogitate on the two, and uh, really, I think this Epic's limited series Chapelweight caused me to kind of go back and and take a look at the similarities and the differences between Jerusalem's Lot, which really is kind of a prequel, precursor to Salem's Lot. Uh, the two are linked, but in vague ways that really begs for there to be some connective tissue, a little bit more connective tissue, connecting story that I hope we get in the future. 
I don't know if we will, but we'll talk about that once we get towards the end of things. But Jerusalem's Lot tells the tale of Charles Boone's in, in letter format. It's a letter addressed to Bones. And we now don't think we ever really find out who Bones is, but uh, Charles Boone goes to his ancestral home, Chapelweight, with his manservant, Calvin McCann. And they find a lot of mysteries going on there. The house Chapelweight is a bad house. And it's very, very akin to Salem's Lot with the Marsden house. I mean, the two aren't the same house. But the Marsden house, I believe, it's been a while since I've read either Jerusalem's Lot or Salem's Lot. But I believe that house was uh, considered bad or, or talked about as a bad house by Ben Mears and and maybe some of the other characters in Salem's Lot. But Chapelweight is, is a bad house. Uh, the townspeople in Preacher's Corners where it, it seems uh, Chapelweight isn't in the town, but the, adjacent to the town. The people there are afraid of the house. They're afraid of the boons. There's a distrust of the boons. And, and then we get this tale about Charles finding a, a map to Salem's Lot, which is an old Puritan community that's now in ruins. And he and his manservant travel there. Nobody's there. Uh, they find this church with these obscene uh, religious uh, mockeries of religious iconography, the, uh, the Madonna, the inverted crosses, and they find this book on the altar called uh, De Vermis Mysterious, uh, Mysteries of the Worm. And one of the more Lovecraftian elements of this story is when he touches the book, the, the ground shakes with this worm, uh, this giant worm beneath the ground. And there's, there's a lot of uh, story between here and there. I really won't go over all of it. Charles Boone finds out how his uncle and one of his other distant relations were involved in a, in a cult dedicated to this mysteries of the worm, to this worm. There's vampires involved. I can't remember how it exactly explains it, but uh, it's kind of implied that this this book and uh, Philip Boone and James Boone have been responsible for turning people into to vampires. Something happened years prior that the inhabitants of the town disappeared. Uh, maybe that's where they turned everyone to vampires and they're no longer around in the daylight. I don't remember it ever being uh, 100% clear, but... Uh, Charles Boone finds uh, dead relatives in his wall. He hears scratching, thinks there's rats in the walls, and finds out it's two uh, Nosferatu vampiric relatives of his in the walls of Chapelweight. And it all culminates back at the church where Charles is going to destroy De Vermis Mysterious, and he gets possessed, starts reading from it. Uh, the worm crashes up from underneath, killing his manservant Calvin, as Calvin's pushing him away and, and knocking him out of this trance that, that has him bringing forth this worm. And I believe it's probably Philip Boone, his, his uncle, great uncle, kind of chases him off. And he decides that uh, as he's writing this letter that he's going to end the Boone line or at least the living portions of it, and kill himself. And then in a bit of a, an editor's note, we find that uh, there is a bastard relative that exists who has gone, uh, like Charles, to proclaim Chapelweight. And James Robert Boone is that character's name, which we don't really get much about them, except that he feels that an exterminator's services are needed because there are some huge rats in the walls by the sound of it. 
And that is the basis. That is what uh, really inspired this show, Chapel Weight on Epics. Now, Epics is not a channel. I, I mean, I'd heard of it, uh, of course. I, I don't have it. Uh, it's one of those pay service uh, streaming, or uh, I believe we have it on our, our Dish Network. But it's again, you gotta you gotta subscribe to it. But I was like, you know what? I'm gonna I'm gonna drop however much it is to watch this for a couple months. Uh, so I, I put down the money to to get Epics so I could watch this. And, and check it out because I saw the, the previews for it and was really fascinated by what they could possibly do with this story. Now, Jerusalem's Lot, uh, not my favorite Steve, Stephen King short story, which is odd because Salem's Lot is probably one of my favorite novels of his, but I didn't at the time really see much of the connective tissue between the two of them. Uh, not that there is a ton, because you have the things that kind of parallel each other, chapel weights in the Marsden house being bad houses. You have vampires in, in both. But in Jerusalem's Lot, they seem like they're, they've are they been there, uh, whereas in Salem's Lot, Straker and Barlow come from from the old country, come from Europe across the ocean. It's not very strong connections other than the, the town's name and the the fact that there's vampires involved and you've got two similarly described houses. But other than that, there's really not uh, too much to, to link one to the other. But I loved Salem's Lot and Jerusalem's Lot was an interesting and odd story. And I thought this could be a good vehicle, this limited series on epics for them to take that story that I really don't have any emotional investment. You know, I'm a big proponent of staying true to the source material if I have if I have a big emotional investment. And that's probably pretty narcissistic of me or whatever. But if it doesn't have any emotional collateral for me, I don't mind if they go and expand. And and really this story is a, a very simple story. You don't learn about very many of the townspeople and preachers corners. Uh, you don't learn a whole lot about anybody uh, period i mean you get what you get about charles boone and, and his family but that's that's about all so there's a, a world that was waiting to be fleshed out i think in chapel weight and and that i didn't mind because i really did i'm gonna go uh on record and say i really did enjoy this series because it hit on a lot of the main plot points of the short story jerusalem's lot it also expanded the world in which Jerusalem's lot lived in, which which I always love. And that's a very Kingian thing to do. You know, King has been known for his world building, his character building. You know, he always builds these rich landscapes in which these richly textured characters live in. And I think that's what they did to the short story with this limited series. Now the series was created by Jason and Peter Filardi who've who've you know they they haven't done a ton in horror but they do uh have some some dabblings. Uh I believe Peter uh Filardi wrote the Salem's Lot version that they did on what was it, TNT or TBS back in the early 2000s. Not my favorite adaptation, but he has had his feet wet in the, the world of Stephen King and the world of uh, Salem's Lot. So, uh, you know, there's there's some bona fides uh, involved there. And they really 
created a, a fantastic cast to fit this fantastic world they they created because uh, from a standpoint of just the the filming and the look of this series and the tone of this series uh, it was just a, a fantastic job you really I mean they filmed this up in Nova Scotia that looked like a really good equal to kind of that main coastal area where this is set. Charles Boone in this adaptation is a little bit different. In Jerusalem's Lot, he's more of uh, the aristocratic type. Uh, very progressive. I mean, he's uh, an abolitionist, but very aristocratic, where in Chapelwaite, Charles Boone is more of a hands-on guy. He's a, a sea captain, uh, part of a whaling ship, He's been out to sea. He left the world that he knew because he had uh, some traumatic events of his childhood with his father and, and this curse that, that we kind of get into and find out about later. But uh, he marries a Pacific Islander and her and him have these three children. He's finally called back from the sea. His wife dies at sea and he finds out that he's inherited this, this ancestral home, Chapelweight, from a dead cousin. So he brings his children uh, back to the States, back to back to Chapelweight to start a new life. Now, this isn't in the book or the short story, but in the limited series, Chapelweight comes with a mill that he has inherited, and he's going to build ships and start this big enterprising business. But much like the short story, uh, the town of Preacher's Corners do not trust uh, the Boons, and they believe that Chapelweight is cursed. And there's a, an illness about the town that they believe started from Chapelweight. And we find out, uh, and, and this is going to be pretty spoilery, because I figure if you were really into this, if you're really into Stephen King, you probably did like I did and dropped the money to get epics and watch this. So you've already seen it. Um, if you're listening to this and you have no interest, maybe this is going to give you some interest. It's going to be spoilery uh, regardless because uh, there's some there's some things that you have to really kind of talk about. I'm not going to go in and talk episode by episode. I'm going to more talk about the characters and some of the things that happen to these characters and some of the events of the story, but uh, but there are going to be some spoilers from here on out. We find out that this illness about town has to do with vampirism, and that very much is at the heart of of both of these stories, especially Salem's Lot. You know, vampires uh, are, are over overtly a part of the story, whereas in Jerusalem's Lot, it's more implied that it's it's vampires that you're dealing with. But uh, Charles Boone is kind of the town pariah. And his kids are kind of lumped in with that, not only because they're boons, but because they are a mixed race. They're they're different color. Of course, he has three kids, Honor Boone, uh, played by Jennifer Enns. Serena, I'm probably going to butcher her last name, and I apologize, but uh, Serena Gilamgos plays Loa Boone, the middle child, and Ian Ho plays Tane, uh, the young young boy Boone in this this family. And of course, uh, Charles Boone is played by uh, the incomparable Adrian Brody. And and I gotta I gotta talk about this uh, because Adrian Brody I think was a perfect person to to play Charles Boone because this is a very moody atmospheric limited series. It's very gothic in nature, and very few actors play brooding and haunted 
better than than Adrian Brody. I mean, that's one of the things that I've always uh, enjoyed about the things I've seen him in is that he he can play that that brooding nature, uh, that hauntedness so well, and I think that's what made him a perfect. Uh, candidate to play Charles Boone but the Boone kids come to town and they're facing a lot of racism and I think that was one of the the triumphs of this as opposed to a lot of more uh, modern told stories uh, is that they really tackled things like racism things like religious hypocrisy things like patriarchal issues you know down with the patriarchy type stuff without really beating you over the head with it it felt a part of the story the the racism that these kids endured felt real it felt a part of this world and not and I, and I never once felt at any point in this like i was being preached to and beat over the head with some morality lesson Whereas this used a, a very deft hand in playing playing the racism as a real world thing and not just some over dramatized event to to make a point to make it stick out so you know that's racism and that's bad. Uh, they really played the racism like racism really happens and it's horrible to watch. Uh, it, it's so you know it's one of those things where you're you're watching it and it just adds to the the empathy. You know these poor kids have gone through so much. They've lost their mother. They've left the life they known. They've been at sea, and and that's that's the world they've known. Um, the, it, it, I think it's implied that they have spent some time, presumably on the island from which their mother was raised. Uh, so they've left that world as well. They've come to this new world where they're looked down upon because solely because of the color of their skin, and and it just adds another layer of empathy for these kids. And the kids, uh, the actors that played these kids, uh, they did a fantastic job. Sometimes kids can can come across just a little too too much in shows, but they really did a fine job casting these. Honor Boone is the oldest. She's the prim and proper older child that kind of the overachiever that uh, takes it upon herself to, to care for the younger kids now that their mother is gone and kind of care for her father and be there and be his support uh, now that their mother is gone. Uh, Loa Boone is the middle child, and she's the kind of the typical uh, problem child, middle child. Uh, she's strong, and she's outgoing. Uh, but at the beginning of the, the show, uh, this catastrophe of losing her mother, she stopped speaking. It doesn't last long. Uh, I believe by the second or third episode, she's talking and, and, and we get to, to find out about this character, which is good. I, I'm glad they didn't drag that out much, but but it just kind of played into her character that uh, this is going to happen. She's just not going to talk to anybody. She's headstrong. She's a visceral kind of character. Tane Boone, the youngest, uh, the little boy, has that innocence, kind of always looking to to be just like dad, to be just like his father, to be strong, but in that kind of sense that the kids kids always want to be stronger than they really are uh, when it comes down to it. Uh, they're uh, scared little kids. And and all these actors and actresses uh, just played these these parts so well. That really forms the, the central core of this ensemble cast with the addition of another character uh, played by Emily Hampshire, uh, Rebecca Morgan. 
she is probably one of the more modern characters of this. Every character in this story and the town just feel real. And the town feels lived in. And these characters and the actors and actresses they've got to play these characters look the part. They look like they've been in these roles their whole life. You get a lot of these period pieces and you can find a lot of actors and actresses that just don't look like they belong in the 1800s. But they really did a great job of casting people that look the part. And it's not that Emily Hampshire didn't look the part because she did. Uh, but the way the character is written, it's very modern. It's a very progressive character, which was not uncommon for that time. She plays the strong female she's a writer and she's trying to make her way in a quote-unquote man's world she's trying to become a writer you know she's having trouble because she is a woman and that is very much of that time but she's very uh, progressive in the fact that she's not going to let anybody stop her she's not going to let any man keep her from pursuing her dream and becoming a successful writer and that leads her to want to write about chapel weight. So to get into chapel weight, she uh, applies to become the governess of the the boon kids. And she really rounds out the, the principal characters in this. We also meet a lot of the other uh, characters in this town of, of Preacher's Corners. There's Samuel Gallup. He's the, the former preacher of Preacher's Corners who has given up his congregation to his son-in-law, uh, Minister Burroughs, played by uh, Gord Rand, who, who did such a fantastic job. But uh, Samuel Gallup, uh, he's this kind of old school preacher, hellfire and brimstone. And if you don't comply to, to what he thinks is right, uh, he is going to ostracize you and make sure everyone else does it as well. Very much a man who uh, proclaims Jesus with his mouth, but then denies him by his lifestyle. Very much uh, the kind of man that Jesus would, would hang his head in shame because Jesus was a, a, a man of love and people like Samuel Gallup are... Uh, people with nothing but hate in their heart. And Eric Peterson, who who plays Samuel Gallup, just he does a fantastic job. He he just uh, you really just couldn't stand him throughout this whole limited series because just no matter what uh, rationale, uh, no matter what rhyme or reason was presented to him, he just rejected it because it was not what he thought uh, should be and. And like I said, Eric Peterson really played that role so fantastically. Uh, another one of the townspeople that we meet who becomes uh, a pretty important character as the story goes on is Gord Rand's uh, Minister Burroughs. He's a man, uh, a man of God. He's the new minister of this town. He's lost uh, a child or children. I can't remember. I think it might have been twins with his his wife. Alice Burroughs, played by uh, Jenny Raymond, and they have a strained relationship. Their child died, or children died, and she didn't want to let them go, and he distanced himself from her. It's a very tragic relationship, because you know the two of them love each other, but they had this tragedy befall them, and they both handled it in the worst way possible, 
and you could never really get any sort of reconciliation there. Uh, we think we might see it towards the end, but that turns out to be not. I won't I won't spoil everything, but there are going to be some spoilers in this, but I will not spoil that. But uh, Minister Burroughs, in, in his distancing himself from his wife, Alice, he f- goes to the arms of another woman and has what he thinks is uh, his child. We find out later that it's not. And but this child is born with uh, major deformities, and it was another nod from the short story because in the short story it talked about a uh, child being born in preacher's corners with no eyes, and we get that kind of fleshed out in this uh, adaptation. And the horror of this poor child that's born no eyes, uh, cleft palate, no real hands or, or feet to speak of, but he loves this child all the same because it's his. And the the young lady that he's had this child with, we find out that she has been a part of this this cult that we'll meet later in Jerusalem's lot. Minister Burroughs, he's a man of God who later on we find that he's he's having trouble with his faith once he finds out that this child is not his and once he finds out what's going on in jerusalem's lot he really has uh, a crisis of faith and i don't ever think he really gets that crisis resolved there's no sense that he has his faith restored which is kind of a sad thing and lends itself to the tragedy of of himself and and his wife alice and and ultimately, Samuel Gallup, who is Alice's father, uh, there's a tragedy there that it, it, it's hard not to feel empathy in spite of all the horrible things that Samuel Gallup says and does. His, his daughter, Alice, when she finds out that the minister has been cheating on her, it doesn't end pretty for, you know, their relationship doesn't end pretty. We think there's going to be some reconciliation at the end, but that, that I'll leave you to see how that plays out. But, uh, but it's a very tragic family unit there. Uh, speaking of tragedy, Constable Dennison is another great character played by Hugh Thompson and he's one of the characters in the town that he doesn't really have an adversarial relationship with Charles Boone. It doesn't seem like he adheres to the racism of the rest of the town in regards to, to Boone's children. Uh, he just wants law and order. He just wants peace in his town. I think that's that's his main motivation. And we find that uh, he and his wife, played by Trina Corkum, Mary Dennison are two of the main players when it comes to the town and the vampires and and the fact that these vampires are, are slowly turning people in this town. And theirs is, is, is quite a, a tragic story as well because Mary Dennison does get turned into a vampire before they even really know it is vampires or, or what vampires even are. But uh, Constable Tennyson, it's it's one of these odd twists of fate where she's been she's been turned. She's drank the blood of a vampire, and this mini series, this limited series, and Salem's Lot really play into the traditional archetypes of vampires, the traditional rules that we've always gone by with vampires. You drink a vampire's blood and die, you turn into a vampire. And he doesn't realize she's drank vampire's blood. He just thinks that she's dying. So he goes to put her out of her misery and smothers her with a pillow and inadvertently turns her into vampire because she's already drank the blood. But he becomes a key player 
with Charles Boone, with Minister Burroughs, as they set to fight these this vampire cult later on in the story. Then, of course, kind of rounding out some of the some of the main cast uh, in this ensemble, you had Dean Armstrong playing Doctor Guilford, uh, who not a main player, comes together at the end as a part of the group that goes to fight this vampire cult. As we as we come upon the end of this, but really more of a tertiary character. You also have Allegra Fulton who plays Anne Morgan, Rebecca's mother. Uh, there's also uh, Gabrielle Rose, who plays Mrs. Cloris, which is one of the characters from the original short story. Uh, she's the former housekeeper at Chapelweight, and she kind of serves the same purpose in this story as she does in the uh, original Jerusalem's Lot short story. She's more of a vehicle to give a little exposition as to what happened at Chapelweight before. Charles Boone came to town. I think in this story, she's a little, slightly more of an active character than in the the short story, but not by much because uh, we don't see a ton of her. But but she plays the character expertly. It was one of those characters that I would like to see more of Mrs. Cloris and Gabrielle Rose's uh, portrayal of her. I, I wish she could have been more of an active participant and uh, we could have seen more with her because I thought she did a fantastic job with that character. And then uh, Devante Sr., who plays um, not? I, I I would have to say more of a tertiary character, just because we don't see a ton of the Abel Stewart character uh, in this. Although he plays an important part, uh, but we just don't we just don't get a lot. But Devonte Senior plays Abel Stewart excellently. He's he's kind of the the guy that does the books at the mill that Charles Boone inherits. And because he's a black man, he's doing all this work, but doesn't make nearly the wages that the his white counterparts that we, we see Charles Boone come up and they're just kind of lazing about, not doing anything. Uh, but Charles Boone takes to Abel and kind of makes him uh, a person of importance in this, in this mill company that he's putting forth as far as building ships and whatnot and doesn't become a right-hand man, but in some regards does become Charles Boone's right-hand man. There's so much other story. We don't get to see him acting as a right-hand man as much as I would have liked to have seen, but uh, but he's also a very present character in, in helping the Boones. Uh, there's a bit of a love interest with him and Honor Boone, and I, I found the one... Thing really interesting because honor wants to kiss him but they're in public and he pulls away and she was like why and and it was implied that you know she thought that well since they're both of color nobody would care but abel stewart essentially says that because she's part white that's about the only time anyone will see her as white is if he kisses her and and they'll hang him for that and it just, you know, uh, another excellent representation of of that racism uh, of that time period and the struggles uh, of a black man as opposed to other people of color in that time. 
uh, when when slavery, I believe this is taking place in what the 1850s, if I'm not mistaken. So yeah, I mean it was a, a very troublesome time for for anyone of color, but especially a, a young black man like the Abel Stewart character. And again, uh, a, a character I would have loved to have seen more of because I thought Devonte uh, Senior did a, an excellent job with what he had uh, there. Again, this this story is all about Charles Boone. And so, you know, that storyline and his relationship with Rebecca Morgan character and his children, that's going to take center stage. The interactions with what's going on with Charles Boone in Chapelwaite manner that he lives in. And then as things progress to what's going on in Jerusalem's lot, that's going to take center stage. So there's a lot of characters, a lot of great characters uh, that we get to learn a little bit more about. Uh, Minister Burroughs, certainly one of those. Uh, Constable Dennison, certainly one of those. There's a lot of great characters that we don't really get enough of. Abel Stewart, Mrs. Cloris, Dr. Guilford, characters like that that I would have loved to see in a little more screen time. Now, we kind of move over to Jerusalem's lot, where it's this old, it, it's very much as it's described in the short story. Jerusalem's lot is this abandoned Puritan settlement that is kind of taken over it, it's not not abandoned it's it's a desolate settlement that's in ruin but it's not abandoned like it is in the short story it is populated by this cult of humans who are all in service to this this head vampire this jacob character played by christopher Hairdall. and one of the things i love about this uh miniseries because they really relied a lot on practical effects and practical prosthetics and makeup to create the vampires they looked very real there well i don't know if there was a lot of or, or any cg i mean i'm sure there probably had to be some uh little cg bits here and there uh, sometimes i think maybe the teeth may have been uh cg'd in but really uh did a fantastic job with his because he's an old ancient vampire and he looks it and even even in a, a world where vampires are immortal he's even old compared to that and he has a, a host of a small group of vampires under his command and then this group of humans that are subservient to them serving these vampires in the hopes that one day they too will be turned into vampires and towards the end we do see that come to fruition to create this vampire army to take on uh, Charles Boone and the group of preachers corners townspeople that he's brought to to try and and kill these vampires. And I almost forgot a couple other key characters, uh, vampires that we find out uh, that were supposed to be dead. Stephen Boone and Philip Boone. Uh, Stephen Boone, of course, the cousin that apparently died and left chapel way to Charles Boone. Philip Boone, his father. His in in this story, Robert Boone is Charles Boone's father, and Philip Boone is his uncle. Whereas in the short story, Robert Boone was Charles Boone's grandfather, and his brother Philip Boone would have been his great uncle. But in here, uh, it's his uncle. Uh, Julian Richings plays Philip Boone. Stephen McCarthy plays as Stephen Boone. Uh, two characters that everyone thought was dead but it turns out they were vampires and they're not in league with jacob they're acting 
contrary to Jacob because all these vampires are after this book, De Vermis Mysterious. In the short story, the book is implied that it's created these vampires, I believe. Uh, the book is implied that it's calling forth this giant worm like god or deity um, that this cult worships in the mini series or limited series on epics uh, chapel weight uh, the book is more of a tool to cast a spell to bring eternal darkness so these vampires can come out and live in the world the way they they feel they should as the apex predators that they are and to bring humanity to essentially an end uh, using this cattle to to feed vampires bloodlust and it, it, it's a big di difference from the short story it's a big departure from the short story i honestly don't mind it the the giant worm deity uh was was a very lovecraftian component of the original story and i once I realized that it was vampires, this host of undead that come with Philip and James Boone to take on Charles Boone in the book or the short story, it just really didn't seem like a connection between the two, uh, which seemed kind of odd and made their story very confusing when I originally read it as a teenager. Um, I like that they've kind of changed the purpose for the book, De Vermis Mysterious, I, I like that they made it more of a, a tool for, for vampires. I like that they really stayed true to what Charles Boone saw in this church because Jacob is set up at this church in Jerusalem's lot. And while you didn't have the perverted uh, version of the, the Madonna, you, you still you had the upside down crosses. Uh, I think some of them painted in blood on the wall. It felt maybe not like it was in the book because I think the book uh, was more of a dilapidated church. This church seems still intact, but it really had the spirit of where this church was in Jerusalem's lot. And and I, I didn't mind the change. I didn't mind the new direction they took with the reason uh, De Vermis Mysterious is so important in this story because as the story uh, progresses the Boone family is cursed they have this book and as long as this book is not in vampires hands uh, the Boone family is going to be insane dreaming of worms uh, and that's kind of where they they tie in the mystery of the worm it's a little convoluted trying to force these worms into the story because this book is called the mysteries of the worm from the original short story it it, it gets a little dicey as to how it, it actually ties in or why it actually ties in but it, it it's not that big of an issue and all these vampires are are after this jacob and his minions are after this book philip and stephen boone are after this book because they all want control of it uh, they all want to bring this eternal darkness so vampires can live and and really essentially whoever holds the book holds that power and it's a power struggle between Jacob and, and Philip Boone. Uh, a power struggle that really didn't seem necessary. But I didn't mind that aspect of the story. And of course, Charles Boone uh, finds this book after it's been lost uh, at the behest of Jacob. Instead of taking it to Jacob, he's trying to keep it away from him. And 
sets to defending Chapelweight with the help of Minister Burroughs and Constable Denison, Rebecca Morgan, and his children, and Abel Stewart as well, as they are attacked by the uh, minions of Jacob, the human minions and the vampiric minions of Jacob. A really great scene. It, it very it very much had a uh, Siege of Winterfell uh, feel to it for, if you, for the Game of Thrones fans out there, but uh, a fantastic episode that took place with the siege, uh, full of a lot of fright and terror, especially how it ends, because Charles Boone's daughter, Loa, the middle child, uh, gets abducted and and turned into a vampire. Uh, spoiler uh, alert. Uh, turns into a vampire by Philip Boone. But it turns out she ends up in league with Jacob and his minions. Uh, Jacob trying to be the father that he feels she lacks in Charles Boone. She has a very strained relationship with Charles Boone. And the, the little actress that plays her, uh, she plays uh, kind of that that dark, forlorn middle child that is just lacking, feels they are lacking something in their relationship with their parent, is taking it out on the parent, taking it out on themselves. Uh, she just plays that so well. And there's a real sadness to this character that really amps up the stakes uh, for when she she turns on her family, turns on her father, uh, to go off with Jacob after after the siege at at Chapelweight. It's just a really complex emotional play going on here with this episode. I believe it was the eighth episode of the series, and just a, a fantastic episode of a fantastic series. It all culminates. The good guys take the day. Uh, when it's all said and done, and Charles Boone is left with this book that is going to turn him insane if he doesn't have the book in vampire hands. He has this vampire daughter, Loa, who could hold on to it, but any other vampires in the world are constantly coming at it, and she is still, even though she's a vampire, she's still but a child. And Charles Boone, in the in the short story, he kills himself to try and end the Boone bloodline, to end this curse, and Charles Boone in Chapelweight makes a similar sacrifice. This one a little more complicated. Uh, yeah, it's a little more complex in the gravity of it all because he decides that he's going to have Loa, his daughter, who's a vampire, turn him into a vampire. While he's dead, before he comes back as a vampire, uh, they get Dr. Guilford to cut his chest open, puts the Divermus Mysterious book in his chest and sews him back up he comes back to life so that way the book is always with a vampire he's not condemning his son Tane Boone to a, a life of having to worry about whether he's going to go insane dreaming of worms because this book is not in a vampire's hands it'll always be there with him he'll be able to take care of it and protect it and he is going to go off uh, sail off into the sunset and there's a sweet little moment where they're on the beach as Charles Boone is sailing away in this boat and Tane runs up and says that he will see him again someday. It, it leaves it kind of open to, to do some sort of a sequel, I guess. I, I thought it would have been interesting to see a PS at the end where like an older Tane Boone comes across Charles Boone, who is, you know, looks the same he did, uh, same he did as the day he left. 
I, I thought that would have been an interesting little PS to the the end. They didn't do anything like that, which maybe maybe that's a good thing. But they play off the uh, distrust that Honor has for Loa, who's a vampire now. They they reconcile that. Uh, Rebecca's going to take care of these kids. And Charles is going to go off to live this life in exile and loneliness and sadness and, and the broodingness and the darkness and the forlornness that uh, that this character has embodied the whole, the whole time through this. This is a very sad but hopeful end. Really the end of a fantastic series. I, I enjoyed this so much. I enjoyed the differences between the short story and... And this limited series adaptation, because I thought as much as I enjoy Jerusalem's lot now as a short story, as opposed to when I first read it, when I first read it, I was confused like, oh, what, what have I gotten myself into with this King guy? But as I've reread it a couple times since, you know, I first read it as a teenager, uh, I've come to appreciate it more. I thought it was a great template for something bigger. And with Chapelweight, you got that. You've got the the world around Charles Boone kind of fleshed out. They explored the rich uh, backdrop in which Charles Boone and the story of Jerusalem's lot took place. This town, the people in the town. Like I said earlier, the town felt very lived in. The characters felt very lived in. They felt like real characters. I didn't mind that they they changed the, the manservant uh, that Charles Boone brought to town to his three kids. I thought that added some emotional weight and some emotional baggage to the story that the short story probably didn't have. Well, it, it definitely didn't have that that emotional weight to it uh, that you get with a father and their children dealing with the loss of the mother. Uh, you didn't have that in that short story, and you get it in this. It just added uh, a richer emotion to the story, and you had a little bit of a love interest with Rebecca and Charles, which uh, there again, that another part of the whole tragedy of all this is that you know they, they finally admit they love each other, and then they cannot be together. And as he's leaving, he's saying goodbye to his kids, and he stands there in front of Rebecca, and you think they're going to get like one last kiss, one last I love you, I'll love you to the day I die sort of scene, and he just turns around and walks to the boat. It's just, it's so heartbreaking how this, this story ends. And that's one of the things I like about King. It's a very Kingian ending to it. While this didn't feel so much like a King story, it, it felt, because like I said, the, the original short story was very much an homage to H.P. Lovecraft, who King is a huge fan of. I know it's taboo to say like H.P. Lovecraft now because of his personal life and his personal demons, but as an author of horror, uh, he was very influential in the world of horror, and King was certainly influenced by him, and Jerusalem's Lot was kind of his love letter to Lovecraft and his way of writing a Lovecraft-style story. So while the story is not the atypical King story, there's certainly a lot of King elements in it. The characters, the environment they live in, the tragedy, uh, because you know King writes some some happy endings uh, from time to time, but he also writes some very nihilistic endings. And while this isn't nihilistic, uh, by any stretch of the imagination, it is a very sad and tragic happy ending. It's a happy ending 
that has consequences. So many happy endings come about and there's no real consequence for what went on. This you feel the weight of the consequence that they suffered for for going up against this this evil in this town and and that I like. I I can get behind that. To me that's real. Endings in the real world aren't always happy endings where the good guys win and the hero gets the girl and everybody rides off into the sunset uh, with rainbows and puppy dogs and butterfly kisses. <laughs> that's just not reality. And that's one of the things I liked about this ending. Another thing I really liked about this is they stayed true to the classic vampire archetype. Bram Stoker didn't invent vampires, but he invented the modern vampire, the vampire as we know it. The vampire that uh, sucks your blood and sleeps in a coffin and is afraid of sunlight and crosses and you have to drive a stake through their heart to kill them or, or behead them. He really created vampires as we know them. And over the decades that have passed since Bram Stoker wrote Dracula, there have been so many different iterations of vampires, so many authors and filmmakers that have tried to reinvent the vampire and i want to do vampires different because i want my vampire to be sexy or i want my vampire to to not care about crosses because i i don't believe in god or or things of that nature and i loved about what i loved about this and what i loved about salem's lot is when king wrote salem's lot he wrote the classic vampire story it was like his version of Dracula. I don't know if that's what he intended, but that's what it kind of felt like. It was it was Dracula done by Stephen King. And and this stayed true to the King uh, slash Bram Stoker style vampire. Now, now, King's gone on to write other types of vampires. His son, Joe Hill, has gone on to write different types of vampires. And I don't mind that. I don't mind authors and filmmakers exploring the different ways you can portray a vampire but i love l-o-v-e in big red capital letters love when a when an author or a filmmaker just goes to what brought you to the dance and that is the traditional vampire i love that and i love that about this is because they stayed true to the vampires of salem's lot uh, which this would be essentially a direct sequel to, and they stayed true to uh, what we know as the the Bram Stoker Dracula and uh, vampire. So I, I really liked that. I also really loved that they played up the horror. In a lot of period pieces these days, they try to modernize it, or you've got you know people saying modern things with modern sensibilities, and this stayed true to the period and stayed true to horror and it really it didn't rely on a ton of jump scares uh, it, it relied on light and shadow and practical effects and it was a sl I've, I've used this term before a slow burn uh, of a movie it was very patient uh, that's probably the term I use more than anything uh, it's a very patient movie it it starts out slow you and, and it really builds to this crescendo of terror and and they play a lot on the what's around the corner what's lurking in the basement that sort of terror that 
we can all relate to because we've all felt it at one time or another. The the vampires aren't over the top caricatures and they feel real and they feel menacing and they feel subtle in so much that they know they hold all the all the cards. They know they have the power and at a snap of a finger all they have to do is take what they want and it's it's almost like they're toying with Charles Boone and his his band of merry men and that that's a frightening thing and some of the dialogue between Jacob and Charles Loa as a vampire and Charles is just some haunting haunting dialogue that it just uh really amps up the the horror of this and that's that's what you want that's what you want with a Stephen King vampire story whether this is a faithful adaptation or more using the short story as a springboard to leap off up to tell a bigger story it's still a King story and it's still very horrific in that King style and another thing I love before we kind of wrap this up is the fact that vampires aren't a known commodity in this world. I love the fact that they're discovering how vampires work as they go along. Uh, vampires are a thing of myth, but something that is not like today. You know, if a vampire in real life were to come and start doing things, we'd all know what vampires do. We all know the rules of the game. We all know how to kill a vampire in of one form or fashion. And, uh, you know, it's a, it's a known commodity where in this world, in this world that Chapelweight lives in, uh, it's not, it's not something that's an everyday occurrence. They know these characters as Nosferatu undead. They, they do know the term. Some of them, I believe, I can't remember. It may have been Dr. Guilford, uh, who first says the term vampire as a doctor. He might know these things or have heard tell of this in, in some sort of class or, or, or what have you. They learn as they go how to kill the vampire. First, they think it's take the head off. Then they realize through the help of Dr. Guilford that uh, they, they feed on blood. So it may this may tie to their hearts. So And then Charles Boone, through trial and error, finds that you stab them in the, with a, in the heart and that's going to kill them they find out about the sunlight burning them the holy they're learning all of these rules of vampires as they go it's not a known thing that they they're ready to start defending the town and the world with all their knowledge of vampires right off the bat uh, you don't get that you get that slow build of them learning how vampires work as they go which i thought was was fun because you get so many where Everybody knows, or at least there's one person that knows everything there is to know about vampires uh, because of some ancient arcane knowledge, or they read it in a book, and they disseminate that information, and everybody's on the same page, whereas this, uh, it wasn't that. it Nobody knew what vampires were or, or how they worked, but they're learning as they go, and they learn all these, they pick up these pieces. It just felt very natural how one might discover vampires and and all the rules that follow uh, vampires to me that was a fun change of pace for a vampire show that that turned out to be a very good classic vampire story uh, as opposed to some of these modern iterations of vampires that we've gotten uh, throughout the the past couple decades uh, so that's probably one of the reasons i love this so i encourage everyone uh if you've watched chapel Wait, 
Uh, hopefully you enjoyed it as much as I did. If not, you know, to each his own. Uh, I, I really thought it was good. If you haven't or you've been on the fence about Chappaweight, it's worth picking up Epics for, you know, the, the series is completely out now. And you pick up Epics for a month and you can binge it. Or you don't even have to binge it. It's 10 episodes. So, you know, in a month's time, you can watch 10 episodes for a few bucks uh, to get epics and and really enjoy a good story. Uh, not even so much a Stephen King adaptation, but just a good vampire story. And I that's that's one of the things I liked about it. It's it doesn't even feel so much like a King story. Like I said, this was a his version of an H.P. Lovecraft story, so it didn't really feel like a King story, but it feels like Salem's Lot. It feels like the world Salem's Lot gave to us in the late 70s and and then the TV adaptation. It, it, they felt like the same world. I'm, I'm really excited they're going to do this uh, reboot, Salem's Lot. Last I heard, uh, they're still doing this. Gary Doberman's set to write and and executive produce it. Uh, James Wan is attached to produce it. Uh, I'm not sure exactly who's who's directing. If Doberman's going to direct, I think I think yeah, I did hear something about Doberman's going to be directing as well. So it looks like it's still going. They're starting to do some casting. Uh, there's no word on when that's going to be start filming or be released. But I'm excited to see this new version of Salem's Lot that's coming out. Of course, the the late 70s version, that one was uh, a made-for-TV miniseries. So it's going to be nice to see Salem's Lot on the big screen. Hopefully, fingers crossed, they stay fairly true to Salem's Lot, uh, the book, because I, I've been really disappointed with a lot of King adaptations, uh, namely its chapter one and two, uh, it had a lot of good aspects to it. The cast was impeccable, but everything else for me just fell flat. And maybe we'll do a a, a podcast episode about that at a later date. Pet Cemetery was an utter catastrophe. Uh, I, as a King fan, uh, I just was so disappointed by that. I don't need to be challenged. I just want to see Pet Cemetery on the big screen. There are ways you can do things different than the late 80s pet cemetery uh there's ways you can do things different and not change the story so at any rate disappointed by those i hope the new version of salem's lot that they're working on doesn't turn out to be like that but i i'm interesting to see uh if they keep this same kind of tone uh that they do with now, granted, it's different director, different producers, so it, it probably is going to feel a little bit different, but I really love the tone that they set with Chapelweight and would love to see that tone and that look transferred to Salem's Lot, which is set in more of a modern time as opposed to a period piece. I'd like to see that, uh, that parallel with a, a similar look to this new movie. So excited about that. And like I said, there, I think there's a lot of room for more uh, of this story because you've got Jerusalem's Lot, the short story. You've got Salem's Lot, the book. And and then the different adaptations. There's not a lot of connective tissue between one and the other, although they are connected by the fact that 
Salem's lot is Jerusalem's lot. You've got these houses that kind of mirror one another, the Marsden house and Chapelweight. They're not the same house, but they have a lot of the same qualities about it being bad. And I, I think there's there's a story to be told in between the events of Jerusalem's lot and in between the events of Salem's lot that could really connect the two. Now, I'm sure King wrote Jerusalem's Lot as a, a short story and thought, I, I, I like the idea I've got here. And I'm going to write Salem's Lot, which was originally going to be called Jerusalem's Lot, as kind of a more fleshed out modern story. I don't think he meant for Jerusalem's Lot to be a prequel per se to Salem's Lot, but but that's what it plays out as. And and as such, I think you've got a great opportunity to to do a, a, a short story or maybe another limited series, uh, an original screenplay by King or whoever. Uh, I, I think it, you know King writes some good screenplays. I'd like to see that uh, where you kind of flesh out the connective tissue between Jerusalem's Lot and Salem's Lot. I don't think that'll ever happen, uh, at least not that I've ever heard of, but that's what I would like to see. And then you've got uh, One for the Road, which is a sequel of sorts to Salem's Lot. It's about the events uh, or an event that happened after the end of Salem's Lot that uh, would be really cool to see that make an appearance. Uh, probably not enough for a big screen adaptation, but maybe enough for an episode of some anthology series. I think would work really well with a creep show or, or something along that line. And uh, there's a lot of, lot of stuff, uh, a lot of uh, meat to sink your teeth into, if you will, when it comes to the world that Salem's Lot and Jerusalem's Lot and One for the Road live in that uh, I would really like to see more of because I love that, that classic vampire story. And like I said, this is Stephen King's Dracula. And I'm a fan. Uh, I really liked this adaptation. It wasn't a word-for-word -word faithful adaptation to Jerusalem's Lot, but Chapelweight really took all the main plot points. There was very little that didn't make an appearance in the, the limited series. The only thing was the giant worm, which I, I'm okay that that didn't go down that way. I'm okay that the endings were similar in loose nature but not exactly the same I, i'm okay with that because the story is the story and the adaptation is the adaptation and granted i'm going to be very hypocritical and have sing a very different tune when it comes to other uh, stories versus adaptations but in this one i i let it slide because i did enjoy the tone the acting and the story that was presented with chapel weight and was one of those st stories you hate to see end because you're just enjoying it so much and enjoying all the horror of it, which is, you know, that's why you want a good horror story. And that's what we got, I think, with Chapelweight. So check it out if you haven't. If you have, like I said, hopefully you enjoyed it as much as I did. And uh, I'm excited to see where the world of uh, Jerusalem's Lot goes next with the new uh, Salem's Lot theatrical release that we will hopefully be getting sometime in the not too distant future so those are my thoughts on chapel weight check it out if you get a chance uh tune in on thursday's episode we are just 
days away from Halloween, and I thought that there's no better way to celebrate Halloween than by talking about some of my own personal experiences with the supernatural and the paranormal, and that is going to be the subject matter for Thursday's show. Just uh, as I said, uh, just days away from Halloween. And uh, that's going to be our, our Halloween special, if you will. So excited about that. Uh, we've got a lot in store for November. There has been so much stuff to talk about, movies and TV shows that have come out in October. We really couldn't get to all of it. So some of those things are going to spill over into November. We're going to be talking about Dune. We're going to be talking about Antlers. Uh, we're going to be talking about some of the TV series that... Uh, uh, are wrapping up uh, American Horror Stories, the double feature, Death Valley finally wrapped up. Uh, we're going to be talking about that and that season as a whole. Uh, a lot of things to talk about in November, and I'm excited to to get a list out. Uh, we'll have a, a schedule out probably within the next uh, week or so. We'll have the November schedule set and ready. So check that out on our Facebook fan page, Odds Bodkins Curiosity Shop, uh, where you can stay on top of everything that's going on with the podcast. And as I said, uh, we're always posting uh, trailers and articles and memes and things, you know, everything that involves horror, fantasy, and sci-fi. Uh, we're trying to keep on top of that all and then talk about it all here on the podcast. So check out the Facebook fan page, share this podcast, give it a review. Five stars would be awesome. I want to thank everyone for taking the time to, to listen to me go on about Chapel Weight. And uh, until next time. Thank you for visiting Odds Bodkin's Curiosity Shop. We hope that you found something to your liking and visit the shop again soon. But even though you may come back, you never really get to leave Odds Bodkin's Curiosity Shop. Ha 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 ha.